Guys, this is week 20 in our sermon series on the book of Mark. I just mapped it out a couple of days ago, and it'll be about week 52 or so before it's over. We'll, we'll throw in some other things just to keep us honest, but the timing of it could be resurrection story on you guessed it, yes, Easter. So we're hopeful that the timing of that will work out. I've got a couple verses I'd like us to look at this evening. This is from Mark chapter 6, beginning in verse 6b. It says, Then Jesus went around teaching from village to village. Calling the twelve to him, he began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over impure spirits. These were his instructions. Take nothing for the journey except a staff. No bread, no bag, no money in your belts. Wear sandals, but not an extra shirt. Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that town. And if any place will not welcome you or listen to you, leave that place and shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. They went out and preached that people should repent. They drove out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. And then dropping down to verse 30, the apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all they had done and taught. This is the word of God for the people of God. So as we start into this little small story about Jesus sending out the 12 to do ministry, we are reminded of the things that have come before. In the first five chapters of the book of Mark, we've seen one overarching theme that has kind of united everything that Jesus has been saying and doing, and that is the kingdom. Early on in chapter one, Jesus is baptized, and then he begins his public ministry by saying, the kingdom is here. The kingdom is now. The kingdom is present with me. And then he began to do works that uh, confirmed that activity, that divine activity of heaven coming to earth. He healed people. He broke bread with people that the society would not wanted him to break bread with. He taught and preached with authority, so, so much so that the Pharisees began to question, who is this guy? How is he teaching with this kind of authority? How is he reading scripture in this way? Jesus was doing things um, that was demonstrating the kingdom was breaking in to this moment. And in his person and in his work, he was announcing peace, hope, rest. He was announcing justice. Jesus, prior to this, had been rejected within his own hometown. So when we hear that Jesus is going about in the same region, preaching and teaching, it's almost as if he is undeterred by what has gone on before. I want to read these verses to you in the beginning of Mark chapter 6, because it sets the framework for what's about to happen in the next handful of verses. It says, Jesus left there and went to his hometown, accompanied by his disciples. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. 
where did this man get these things, namely uh, the wisdom that he is, is teaching with? What's this wisdom that has been given him? What are these remarkable miracles he is performing? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son, the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. This is the people that had seen Jesus grow up, the people that know his parents, the people that saw him down the street or working on this house or that house from the time he was born until now when he's doing this ministry and healing people and, and he's become something that they weren't necessarily expecting. And it says in the beginning of Mark chapter six that they are offended by him and what he is doing. He's ultimately rejected in his own hometown. Jesus says to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his own town among his relatives and in his own home. And he could not do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them he was amazed at their lack of faith. And this is the transition into Jesus going around within this particular region and continuing to teach and preach and hope that people are catching the message. Jesus, undeterred by the fact that he is being rejected, and ultimately this is a foreshadowing for Jesus being rejected um, to the point of death later in the book, but we see here Jesus being rejected and continuing to go on in this ministry, announcing the kingdom, announcing restoration, announcing reconciliation and hope to the masses in the hopes that they would begin to catch a vision of what might be. Continues, calling the 12 to him. This is uh, this group of selected individuals that Jesus had called to be his his crew, if you will, the 12 that would follow him around and see the things that he was doing and hear the things that he was teaching and become his mentees almost. So Jesus, as the mentor, is teaching these folks to go and ultimately to do. It says that he began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over impure spirits. Now this uh, passage right here has a background to it. In chapter one, we meet Peter and Andrew and James and John and these people that Jesus is calling to himself. And he introduces this call by saying, come follow me and I will send you out to fish for people. He was talking to a fisherman community and using this image to, to evoke what was, what was going to happen in their ministry. It was going to be something that was changing the lives of people that were in their sphere of influence. And then in chapter three, Jesus calls these 12 individuals. It says he appointed 12 that they might be with him and that, they might send, that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. These are the things that Jesus was doing in the first few chapters. He was preaching, he was teaching, he was doing miracles, and ultimately he was driving out impure spirits. All throughout the book of Mark, there's this underlying polemic of Jesus versus the the. Uh, impure spirits or the demonic forces of the day. It's, it's battle between good and evil. And we've seen in the first five chapters that Jesus is winning. Whenever Jesus shows up and someone is oppressed by a demon, they basically say, what do you want to do to us? Why are you here? And they begin to be scared by what might be. And here, in the, in the first few chapters, Jesus has been announcing, this is what you're going to do, get ready. This is what you're going to do. Eventually, I'm gonna send you out to go preach and teach and cast out demons. Hold your horses, it's not happening yet. But soon, this is going to take place. And now, in chapter six, we move from the hearing and the preparation into the actual doing where the 12 are going out two by two to do the things that Jesus himself is doing. 
Now, we could pause here for a moment and see a little bit of how that might inform us today, now. Even though, as I'll talk about in a minute, this passage is very much rooted within its first century context when Jesus was here on earth in a specific moment in time. What we can learn from this is still as his followers who have been called to fish for people, we are to emulate the things that Jesus is doing and saying and teaching. Your lives should be a reflection of Jesus. For those of us in the room that are claiming to be followers of Jesus, that should be something that is seen not just on our Facebook posts that are super religious and we have the picture of the bald eagle flying and underneath of it, it says Isaiah 40. It's like they will mount up on the wings of eagles. Like you can know that something's going on when somebody posts that, but hopefully it goes beyond those inspirational posts into they know that you are following Jesus because they know that you love and you serve and you sacrifice for people. There was an old song that says, they will know we are Christians by our love. There's a new Christian t-shirt that says, they will know we are Christians by our t-shirts. And I think in some ways, we sort of have reduced the gospel to that. Um, but we see here that Jesus is training these people to go and to do what he himself is doing. The fact that the 12 had received an endowment of spiritual power from Jesus indicates that God is on their side. And so they need not worry about how they are to support themselves along the way. Jesus, as he's sending people out, is giving them authority to do the things that he is asking them to do. And because of that, they need not worry about how they are to support themselves along the way. The same God who has given them dominion over superhuman foes will certainly supply their physical needs. And here we can go back almost to a Matthew 6 idea where why should you worry about what you eat and drink and wear? God has got you in the palm of his hands and he will provide for you. In this text, it goes a little bit farther where, where Jesus is giving these folks the power to preach and teach and have authority and ultimately to cast out demons, and this is something that is, is guiding them along the way. He says, take nothing for the journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in your belts, wear sandals, but not an extra shirt. There's a sense of urgency here where Jesus is sending people out to do the work that must be done, and because they have been invested with power and authority from Jesus himself, he gives them this list of things that they don't even need on the journey. All you need is a staff. You don't take bread. You don't need a bag. You don't need money. You should have some shoes on, but you don't need an extra shirt. Why? Because God is going to provide for you wherever you go. Now, for anyone that is in tune with pop culture, which might be 12 of you in the room or might be all of us, I don't know. I don't want to discriminate. Um, I've got two examples of how this is working out here. This is a picture of Drake and Meek Mill. So in the last month or so, what's been happening is this epic Twitter back and forth between these two rappers where basically one is calling out Drake saying, Drake, you don't even write your own raps. That's messed up. And Drake says, sure I do. And then they start having these, these 
raps that they write against each other and so on and so forth. But what I've seen as a person who's not necessarily the rap aficionado that you might think that I am, <laughs> what I've seen is these clips where you'd hear like a, a few bars from Drake and then you'd hear a few bars from Meek Mill and they're basically the same exact thing. And this pattern keeps repeating over and over and over. And for some people that are in the know here, they would be able to hear a line or two from Drake and hear the influences from Meek. Now, there's also just in this world of music uh, a bit broader, you can see, especially in the world of rap and R&B, these things called samples where they're taking old songs and they're reusing them in new and exciting ways. But for people that know music, you would know where this beat or where this sample is coming from, and it would be something that's new and exciting. Another example of this is maybe more, for, for more people, this is Oh Brother, Where Art Thou, which is a Coen Brothers film. I love the Coen Brothers. They're very, very dark, but they're good storytellers. This is a story about three convicted felons who escape from the chain gang, and they're off looking for $1.2 million, and hijinks ensue. Um, but what's going on in this is, in the very beginning of this movie, there's an intro tile that says, this movie is based upon the Odyssey by Homer. Now, the Coen brothers at times kind of mislead people and throw in some stuff that's not necessarily the case, but if you watch this movie, you can see the influences of Homer's Odyssey at specific points. And it's almost as if, in order to understand, oh brother, where art thou, you need to know Homer, because that's the underlying structure for what's taking place here. This is N.T. Wright saying there is some similarity between what the disciples must have looked like as they went on their way and the appearance of some wandering philosophers of whom we have scattered reports who went about the ancient world begging, teaching people that the present world with all its pomp and show was a sham and a nonsense and they shouldn't pay attention to it anymore. These were the cynics. They had the reputation of barking at the rich and respectable. Some people seeing a pair of Jesus' disciples might have thought at first that they were that sort of people. The way that Mark is telling this story could potentially be, you take your staff, but you don't take this, you don't take that, you don't take this. It could be a way of, of framing the ancient audience to say there's something different about the disciples specifically with regard to what the cynics looked like at that time. So if we see what's happening here in this text, the disciples are noted for having a staff, but not bread and not a bag and no money and sandals, but only one tunic. That was important because, as you'll see, the cynics took two tunics, one to wear and then one at nighttime to roll up and kind of use as a, a pillow. They also were known for having a staff, but they were taking bread and they were taking provision bags. Um, one ancient Greek philosopher named Epictetus says that the cynics are known for having a staff, a provision bag, and a big mouth. So it could be that in Mark, they're kind of playing with these ideas of these are the cynics and this is what they would look like and this is what you expect. The disciples are a little bit different. Their mission is, is something Different. If I painted the picture for you of a couple folks um, showing up into a neighborhood with black pants and a white shirt and ties and pamphlets, you'd know who I'm talking about. And here in the first century, it's, it's similar in the sense of, for an ancient reader, they might think, oh gosh, that sounds a lot like the cynics, but there's some notable differences there. 
oh gosh, this Drake song sounds a little bit like this Meek Mill song, but there's notable differences there. You could also say, though, and I think this is a better way forward in the disciples and the way that they're described looks very similar to the Exodus. So there's this story in the very early portions of the Bible where God's people are in bondage and slavery in Egypt. And there's an oppressor that is um, making them work double the amounts of what they need to be working. And they're just being driven to the bone. And God raises up Moses to bring them out of slavery and this submission and servitude. But those stories, the way that they're told, they're very similar to this kind of throwaway detail about the the description of the disciples. In both stories, they have staffs. Moses has a staff that he waves over the Red Sea and it parts and the, the Israelites are carrying walking sticks as well. Neither one of these folks have bread because in the Exodus, they left in such a hurry that they didn't have time for all this provisions and God said, I will provide for you. So it wasn't take the bread and bake it. It was God will give them manna every time they wake up in the morning. It would be there for them. They were also commanded to have sandals, obviously, because they were gonna do a lot of walk-in so they needed some good shoes. And they were also commanded to have one single garment. The way that people um, describe the observation of the Passover is this. You tie your sandals on real tight. You sit around the table. Um, You're reminded of this flight that you had from oppression into freedom. And it's almost drawing this parallel where the disciples are taking on some of these same attributes. The message that we learn from this would be Mark is announcing a new exodus through a new Moses. When Jesus shows up for an ancient audience, they would have had all these flags going up. So they're going out there and they've got a staff, but they don't have a bag and they've got shoes and they've only got one coat. Sounds like the exodus to me. It sounds like the exodus to you. Yeah, it sounds like the exodus to me. Well, maybe there's something there. Maybe, Maybe Jesus is a new Moses. I don't know. For the ancient audience, they would have heard these things and they would have connected the dots that Jesus is the new deliverer. And the announcement of the kingdom is not just this pie in the sky idea, it's something that was happening here and now. And what the disciples were doing is they were going to invite people in. To invite people into this moment where they too could be relieved from whatever oppression it is that they were under. There are echoes in this story of urgency. There's echoes in this story of release, similar to the ones that we see in Exodus. There's echoes in this story, ultimately, of the kingdom. Again, this call that heaven is inbreaking and it's invading and it's happening now, and the plea from Jesus and his people is, join us, partner with us. Align yourself in a way where your life is reflective of this fact. This was the instruction that Jesus gave to the disciples in this moment. Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that town. Again, this is something that within the first century, some prophets would show up into a town and they'd start staying in a humble home wherever they could get into and then they would start making friends and then they'd move up to the nicer home and then they move up to the nicer home and they move up to the nicer home. It reminds me of this guy, Kyle McDonald. Do you guys know this guy? He started with this big red paperclip and he started trading with people via Craigslist, which, okay. But he eventually traded this paperclip for this thing and then that thing and this thing and that thing until finally he was in a house for a year rent-free because of the things that he had accrued that he had traded. He's getting um, 
air compressors and generators and uh, vans, and he's trading vans for recording contracts and like recording time and all these, he's doing all this stuff, he's wheeling and dealing until finally he gets to stay free in somebody's home from a paperclip. Be inspired, people. The world is your oyster, go, go. But for some prophets, they start here and then they just kind of finagle their way into here and then they go over to here and kind of like that. Jesus says, no, you go, you find a house wherever somebody accepts you and you stay there. And if any place will not welcome you or listen to you, you leave that place and you shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. Every little bit of this people you remove from your body. In this society, obviously you're wearing sandals and I don't know about you guys, but like in the summertime, you like to put on your flip-flops and you run around in the field and you get dirty and whatever. And by the end of the night, the greatest thing to do is just to step into the tub, wash your feet and then jump into bed. Cause it's like you got the clean feet and you go into the covers. Am I the weird one here? Okay, it's a very nice moment. And in the first century, this was sort of the uh, similar where if you're doing so much work with your feet exposed, they're gonna be gross and they're gonna have all this residue and they're gonna have dust. But if these people are not accepting you or your message, shake the dust off your feet in a way that where you remove all of what they have to offer, but it's also a symbol of, this isn't gonna be good, guys. I don't, this isn't gonna go well for you, okay? So here, uh, it's, it's this testimony against them. Some people read that, that differently, but for the most part, it seems as though these people are removing every little bit of those people to say, gosh, I wish that you would join us, but you're not, and this is the testimony. I gotta shake off whatever I got. Continues, this was their message. They went out and they preached that people should repent N.T. Wright says, getting ready would mean repenting. It's not just feeling sorry for particular sins, but changing one's entire outlook and aims. Jesus' agenda left no room for compromise and no time to waste. When we think about repentance, when we think about the people that stand outside of concerts and say, repent, it's usually boiled down to stop the sins that you're doing and ask for forgiveness for them. That's an aspect of it, but in this first century context, it was more of a radical reorientation to don't be following the things that you are following now. It wasn't just a stop sinning clause. It was a align yourself with the right people. This message of the disciples is align yourself with Jesus as the king as the one who is bringing the kingdom here, as the one who is offering a different and a better way to read scripture and to do life and to live life together. He's offering that to us now. Live in light of that. I think that there's some application for us as, even as a 21st century church. It's not just about sinning less. It's about radically reorienting your life to following Christ. Does that involve sinning less? Yeah, I hope so. But it also involves a complete alignment to the things that Jesus is about. Justice, peace, love, hope, reconciliation. The list goes on and on and on. And hopefully as Christians and followers of Jesus, those are the traits that we can see played out in our own lives as well. And this was the result from the disciples as they go out. It says they drove out many demons 
and anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. What's interesting here, in the, the verses that precede this story, Jesus was rejected. Jesus was amazed by the lack of people's faith. And now we see the disciples going out, casting out demons, anointing sick people, healing them. It seems as though their ministry was successful. I just want to let that simmer uh, for a moment. This passage here at the end where the disciples are healing people and anointing them, it reminds me of James chapter 5, which says, is anyone among you in trouble? Let them pray. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. This is a call to the, to the, the church following after these disciples to, to carry on some of this activity says, and the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. If they have sinned, they will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you might be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. We even now can still follow some of the things that these disciples were laying out for us. Praying for people allowing God to, to work supernaturally in a cultural context that is not comfortable with the word supernatural. To pray big prayers where people can receive healing and where people can um, have their chains of bondage broken to whatever it is that's holding them down. At times, I think sometimes the way that we do life is we limit what God wants to do through us and we allow the work to be done by the big heavy hitters. But in this context, Jesus is the one who's rejected. Jesus is the one who's amazed by the people's lack of faith and the disciples go out and they do the work. So what can we make of all of this? There's a couple of different points of application um, that I want to at least have us consider. The first is this idea of sending. And again, I do think that this particular story is bound within a first century context. I don't think that we go out and try to replicate what's going on because in their moment, there was a sense of urgency where Jesus wanted this message to be proclaimed to the people. And the message that we have to proclaim is a bit different. It's a bit nuanced. But there's still this idea of you and me being the sent ones being the ones that have been entrusted not only with the gospel, but with this idea that God is on the move and that God's kingdom continues to invade this place and to allow people to see that in a tangible way. We are the ones that now carry that message as if Jesus is saying, go out and tell people what I'm asking you to tell them. We are also the people that receive provisions. Remember Matthew 6 where, where God says, why are you worried about what you'll eat or what you'll drink or what you'll wear? I don't know about you guys, but I don't necessarily always have the faith of the disciples who just leave with a walking stick and shoes and say, here I am. I hope somebody will put me up in their house. I worry about everything all the time. This text in Matthew 6 where it's, it's asking us to, to go beyond that and to trust God to do what God is doing in our lives is not something that I necessarily allow to inform me on the day-to-day -day because I'm too worried about the outcome that I can't even affect. 
It's a life that doesn't see the provisions of God and at times is so consumed by worry and its beautiful best friend, guilt. There's also uh, this perception in the text, Jesus is sending people out because he knows that this moment in history is important. And I think that for us, as we're sitting here today, there's things in our culture and in our context that we desperately need to address as the church. Issues of justice, issues where people are being mistreated, issues where folks need to see a different and better picture of Jesus. This is our moment, perhaps, where we are able to perceive what those things are and then to go to address them with the same authority that Jesus has invested with his disciples to go out and to teach and to cast out demons. It's as if Jesus is investing us with the same power and authority to meet the needs of others if we are just perceptive enough to see them and to begin to address them. There's, along with that, there's a sense of, of urgency where it's, it's not just, oh, it'll take care of itself. There's certain things in this world and in your lives, even right now, where the, it's time. You've sat on it for long enough. And now is the time when you go out in your calling and you begin to address the things that Jesus so desperately wants you to address. I don't know what they are. I don't know your stories in that way. But I know that for some of you that are sitting here today, it's time. Perhaps it's a relationship that needs to be restored. Perhaps it's, it's a wrongdoing that needs to be addressed. Perhaps it's um, an injustice that you have seen. And the, the subtle implication of this text is, go do the work. And then finally, um, we also see in this text these very, very small signals of exodus. The story that continues to frame the Jewish identity of release from oppression. And Jesus, not just in this story, but many stories in Mark, he becomes the new Moses. He becomes the person who wants to lead people out of captivity into life and into freedom and into blessing. That call is no different for us today. I think that a lot of times we kind of reduce the gospel to this sinless sort of good news when it seems as though the good news is the spirit of the Lord is upon me to proclaim good news to the captives, to set them free, to proclaim that they are no more in chains, to allow the blind to see like Jesus is restoring the world and putting it to rights and that's the story that we should be inviting people into and allowing them to see how that is true, not just in a philosophical sense, but that's true in our lives as well. In these few verses in Mark, he's setting the tone for what these disciples are going to do and a lot of times in Mark, they fail completely and utterly, but here, it seems as though they get it and I hope that we can hold on to that positive moment where we too might be encouraged to get it. To leave here and then to do the work, to drive on our streets and to not be content with the way things are and then to start something that will impact the lives of people in whatever way that looks like for you. My hope today is that we feel a same sense of that urgency and calling and perception to see the needs 
and to do something about them together and as individuals. It's my hope that we live in light of this exodus that has been wrought on our behalf where no longer are we the oppressed, but we live in freedom and we live in the midst of God's glorious and good hope for us as people.